I don't think I've ever made it through that song without tears. I couldn't even sing it today, at least not out loud. It's just, uh, uh, a lot of our, our, our loved ones, our friends, our brothers, our sisters are having hard times. So we got to hold, hold one another up in prayer. Okay, we'll do that. All right, sorry. The Lord is good. Amen. Okay. Exodus 5, 6, and 7, into 7. This part of the narrative is, is one block, uh, 5, 6, and partly into chapter 7. And it, it, it's bracketed uh, by some similar themes. And I'm going to try to weave our way through the narrative. There's really two halves. We read the first half of the narrative where the problem is set. Now, uh, I think, was it last week I shared with you my own aversion toward academics and my fear uh, to go to college at all? Well, I finally did. And the first year was really kind of much the same as the high school experience. And then that summer, I met a beautiful young lady. <laughs> and suddenly, I had a realization that this could actually be important. And so I studied harder. I got better grades. And now, it, it, it was significant raise and challenge. And then I, I enter into then the, the next academic year, and I had been, yeah, no, not because of grades, but I got one of those little um, everybody gets to, is a winner kind of scholarship. <laughs> and it covered maybe, maybe one course, and that's about it. And I thought, if I get better grades, maybe it'll cover two courses. You know, I don't know. But no, I'm already, it was, I'm hooked in to the system. They weren't worried about me giving me more money. They gave me less. The harder I worked, I got less in return for that. Now, obviously, I got more out of the education because I worked harder and so forth. But that's a very small uh, example of something that you, you have experienced where Okay, things are going good now. We've got the green light. we got the go-ahead. And everything is going to fall in place. And we'll have success. And then you're met with a roadblock, a devastation, a hindrance, something. And it doesn't go like you thought it should go. We read a bit of Moses. Moses has, well, midlife. Well, a third of the way through his life. He's 40 years old. And he, he met with the Lord. The Lord met him on that mount in the wilderness. And he was given a, a recommission to go and, and deliver the people out of bondage, the Hebrews out of Egypt, and bring them to worship 
the one true living God at that same place, the mount. And so Moses meets Aaron and and they return to Egypt and they meet with the elders uh, of the Hebrews and the elders believe the message and they bow down in worship of God. Success. And then Aaron and Moses go in to meet Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says no. And not only Pharaoh says no, but then the burdens increased. The labor laws are impressed upon the Hebrews to, to an oppression. And the foremen go, and then they, they meet with Pharaoh, and he still says, no, get to work. And then they, there's Aaron and Moses waiting for the elders to come out of their meeting with Pharaoh, and they say, you made us a stench. You made us stink in the presence of Pharaoh. You did this. Wow. Rapid turn from hearing the message, receiving it, worshiping together to get out of our face. Now, that is a, not just a foretaste. That is probably the first of the grumblings that Moses will have in 40 more years of leading this particular people. We've all met with different levels and different kinds of disappointment, discouragement. It isn't the question that if, if we will, it's, it's how are we going to deal with them? How are we going to process? How are we going to go through those disappointments and discouragements? Uh, we live in this tension. Not everything is going to go good, and yet even as we, we praise the Lord, he's, He is good. And he, He's given us a, a promise of a hope and a future, of an eternity, of a new creation, a, a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells, but we aren't there yet. And until we get there, we are in this tension. What do we do? Well, we'll work through the narrative, and it is a larger one, as I said, but what I'll do is I'll take it maybe character by character and weave portions of the narrative together because there's a a fair amount of back and forth when we get to the dialogue uh, sections. But the the first larger block is the first few verses, verses 1 to 9, and we will identify this character as the hard heart. This is Pharaoh himself. So, Aaron and and Moses uh, met with Pharaoh and they brought their request to go to the desert, go three days into the desert for a a festival. This is not unusual, not out of the ordinary. Israel's done this before at least once. We read in Genesis chapter 50, if you go back back a few pages, uh, when Jacob passed away, his relatives take him three days' journey into the wilderness for the burial festival. But Jacob's long gone, and, and Joseph is long gone, and this is even a different Pharaoh and administration than Moses grew up under. Things have changed. And by now, that, that kind of relationship between these nations, these people groups, is, is long gone. In fact, the Pharaoh has apparently continued the 
policy of fear uh, of the presence of the Hebrews. There's many of them, he would say. There's many of them. And earlier in chapter 1, Pharaoh said, there's, there's too many of them. They're going to overwhelm us and take over our nation. Let's eradicate, decrease a, a genocide type of policy. This Pharaoh apparently has similar kinds of things. He says, there are many. Now he Im- imposes this heavy labor oppression, the work camps in which he puts them. You remember that Moses struggled with the call. Chapters 3 and 4. He struggled with going back to Egypt. He struggled with God telling Moses, you will be my spokesman. And Moses, in effect, said, who am I? And Pharaoh's response is a bit different attitudinally. In effect, Pharaoh's response is, do you know who I am? Two completely different psyches going on here, let alone spiritual aptitudes. Pharaoh, he says right out, I don't know God. Who is this God? And it's not just an acknowledgement problem. He's got an attitude problem. He doesn't really want to know this God. He's got this hardened heart toward God. Now, there's competition, inevitably. You see, the pharaohs were descendant of the gods. And at least treated as God, if not in their own estimation, God. What do you mean another God? You mean a God of the Hebrews. Don't you know who I am? And Moses is representing the the great I am. You see the conflict, the spiritual conflict between Pharaoh and the Lord himself. In fact, Pharaoh mocks different things. In chapter 5 and uh, verse 1, Moses and Aaron go, go to Pharaoh and say, Thus says the Lord. Now, that isn't quite exactly how the Lord told Moses to go about it, you might remember. But that, that's their approach. Nonetheless, thus says the Lord. And then in verse 10, the taskmaster's report, thus says Pharaoh. Ooh. Whose word is more important? God's or Pharaoh's? Uh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh even goes on to mock uh, the request. Verse 1, chapter 5, Aaron and Moses say, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, oh, you want to go? Go! Go to work! You, you see this, this fight between Pharaoh and the Lord Himself. In fact, even Now, again, Moses gets a little beyond what the Lord actually told him, at least as it's recorded. He he talks about the sword of the Lord, uh, verse 3 of chapter 5. Let us go, otherwise pestilence and sword of God will fall upon us. Now, maybe he has in mind his own experience on the journey back to Egypt when he had not followed and obeyed the word of the Lord 
in terms of keeping covenant that God made with Abraham. And God was going to take Moses out. Maybe Moses is, is filling in uh, some of the gaps, but God didn't actually tell Moses, say it that way, which is a, a little foreshadowing. Uh, Moses, why are you discouraged? And maybe part of it is your own doing. Nonetheless, Pharaoh, Pharaoh then has his own sword in chapter 5 and verse 21. The sword that uh, is to kill the people. There is a power struggle, a position struggle between Pharaoh and the Lord. And Pharaoh's hardness of heart toward God manifests itself in his treatment toward God's image, toward humanity. And, and really, that shouldn't be a shock or surprise. The way you view God will manifest itself, reveal itself, show itself in the way you treat men and women and boys and girls who are created in God's image. You see, the devil, the enemy, he hates God, right? He is opposed to God. And yes, he can throw, he can throw carved images, graven idols at us and say, worship them. I mean, we could, we could, turn, we could turn that cross into an idol, couldn't we? The devil can do that and distract us, but that's not the only way that he gives us a way to uh, devalue the image of God. He, he, he can get us to destroy, demean the image of God, the real image of God, not carved things, but humanity, beautifully, wonderfully, fearfully created and made in the image of God, man and woman, male and female. And the enemy can seek to detract from God's glory by getting the image of God to turn on itself, to destroy itself. And here is a glimpse of that reality. Now, interesting in the, the news this last couple weeks, there was a court case and the judge here, well, let me just read the, the headlines. It's from AP News. Judge uses a slavery law to rule frozen embryos are property. Another article puts it this way. Judge rules human embryos can be valued and sold as goods and chattel. You know, we thought we, were, we, thought we could be past a slavery kind of philosophy and mentality. But this particular judge went way back into some laws around the years of our American Civil War where slaves... Black Americans were 
treated as chattel, the chattel slavery, property. And he's using that property law as a basis for frozen embryos. Now, this is because a husband and wife are in a divorce proceeding and they're fighting who gets custody. Again, just an example of the kind of demeaning and devaluing. Now, if, if this kind of logic and thinking is allowed to continue and persist, there, 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 is, no, there is no hope on the, on the human level, on the governmental level, to stop any kind of slave trade. Let alone the, to stop the the, the death, death toll on the unborn. Example, fa- uh, application of how a, a hard heart resistant toward even acknowledging God plays out in the world. This is what it will look like in a godless society. Pharaoh snidely reacts, they must not have enough to do. They must be daydreaming, fantasizing about another land. Get to work. Now, this is not unlike Jesus' warning to his disciples and to those that he would teach about discipleship. The cares of life will choke out the word of the Lord. Here's how Jesus put it in Luke's version of the gospel, Luke chapter 18 and verse 14. He had been telling the parable of the, of the seed sown uh, on different kinds of soil. Rocky soil, thorny soil, good soil, uh, the pathway itself. Well, here's, here's how he describes that that fell among the thorns. They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares, even riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Now, yes, it, the, the riches and pleasures of life can distract and divert in its own kind of idolatry, Deviation from understanding the God who created those pleasures. But it is also the cares. This is the word anxieties, burdens. They can keep us from obedience to the word of the Lord. And that's indeed what happens. And that's our second group of people. We'll call these the broken spirit. 10 to 21 describes their their plight, the oppression that, that ensues. Pharaoh's hardness of heart and his harshness of treatment. The Pharaoh turned, turned to the, or the foreman turned to the people and said, get to work. And they, but they can't make their quotas. So the foreman, apparently the foreman are Hebrews themselves. The foreman go to Pharaoh. Now whether they had, well, anyway, they must have some kind of way to be in his presence and bring this this scenario they have no straw with which to make the bricks they have to do that work on in addition to the actual forming of the bricks they, the egyptians were were in, incredible 
architectural engineers and craftsmen, and they, they could do marvelous things with these bricks. Well, Pharaoh says, you're lazy, you're daydreamers, get back to work. And, and their, their response to their leadership, to Moses and Aaron, is, you've made us a stench, you, you made us stink. It's your fault. And then chapter 6, verse 9, gives us a, a description of the people. They didn't listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and the harsh slavery, the, the cares of life, the anxieties, the burdens of life got them down so far like they couldn't even hear the word of God through his servant, let alone obey. We, we, can, we can downtrodden a people, a person. I know sometimes we use the broken spirit as one who's humble and contrite, and that, that's true. Isaiah uses that picture. I think it's chapter 40. Uh, Jesus himself says, I am gentle and lowly of spirit. Yes. That's not the image that's here. This is one, they are, they're broken. And we can treat God's creation in ways that break. You think of breaking a horse. And that's to get the wild streak out and the jumping and so forth. But it can get to a place where then it, it's totally demure you know, no activity little at all we can do that to our uh, people around us a husband and a wife can break the other's spirit a parent can break a child's spirit by harshness and make it difficult for them to have a relationship with the God who made them. Even, even perhaps more challenging is, is a harsh-spirited parent who claims to be one of God's but doesn't act like one of God's. And that can break the spirit of a child, of a co-worker, of a husband, of a wife. Now you can see you can see why the foreman would go to Pharaoh. I mean, it's it's work. Work is work. Go to the boss. Bring your complaint. But um, on the one hand, you know, it makes sense. On the other hand, it why would you go to the very one who implemented the problem? What do you think is going to happen? Where should they turn? Maybe they should have turned to the one they were just introduced to, the Lord Himself. Do you turn to the Lord when you're in these discouraging moments, disappointing moments, even these broken-spirited moments? Do you turn to the Lord? The psalmist puts it this way, Psalm 80, 86 and verse 6, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. And in the day of trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. 
Now, that's perhaps what the people should have done, but Moses does. We'll call this character the uncircumcised lip. Uh, twice he will describe himself that way in chapter 6 and uh, verse 12. He's talking to the Lord and how's Pharaoh going to listen to me? I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. says it again in chapter 6 and verse 30. Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I'm of uncircumcised lips. How's Pharaoh going to listen to me? Like he, he's heavy of lip, heavy of tongue. Doing God's work made things worse. It would seem, wouldn't it? But, but we, Moses shouldn't be totally shocked. I mean, the Lord had told him in chapter 9, uh, chapter 3, verse 19, and chapter 4, verse 21, Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. Now, as a preacher, that's really hard news to get when you're called to go. I want you to go preach, but they're not going to listen. God told that to Moses. He told that to Jeremiah. He told that to Isaiah. He told it to Ezekiel. Preach, and you're accountable and responsible to preach what I tell you to preach, but they're not going to listen. Like, oh, well, I don't want to go. And that was Moses, right? And to some degree, he's still, at least he's honest, but at least he went to the Lord, right? At least he went to the Lord, and he laments. Verse 22, chapter 5, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people, and you've not delivered your people at all. Now, it's one thing, you know, he should know, well, the Lord didn't quite say, I told you so, did he? He reminds him of the message. Now, Moses laments, Moses complains, and I think it's good for us to understand Moses begins to question God's goodness. Why have you caused trouble? He begins to question God's purpose. Why did you send me here? And he, he questions God's ways. You haven't delivered them at all. You might be able to identify with some of those questions at points in your life. God, I thought you were a good God. God, what, what do you want from me? God, why are you doing it that way? Not my way. We can identify with Moses' lament, his complaint, and know, know that it's okay to talk openly and frankly with God. Do it humbly, honestly, openly, respectfully. Not sinfully, not rebelliously, but you can ask God your questions. Now, God doesn't have to answer all of your questions. Think about Job. Job asked a lot of questions in his suffering. And he didn't get all the answers. He learned what he needed to learn and more than he could have imagined. But God didn't answer every question. But guess what? 
Well, don't guess. No. Know this. God hears every question. He hears every question. He knows every tear. He holds them in a bottle, the psalmist explains. And Jesus died. For the wages of sin is death. And Jesus died and rose again from the grave, which we'll celebrate on Resurrection Sunday, Easter, to wipe away those tears. Yes, we still cry. We tear up when we consider our church family and we sing songs and they come to our minds. But the day is coming when God will indeed wipe away all those tears. Until then, we ask questions. Be still and wait for the Lord and He will deliver you. Rely on that sovereign and sweet grace of God. And Moses is at least going to the right place. Well, then we get to a, a rather strange section. Uh, chapter 6 uh, is this back and forth between uh, the Lord and Moses. Their dialogue, their conversation. And then, and then all of a sudden, it seems abruptly, verse 14 brings in the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. And Dave's very glad that I didn't have him read that far. And I'm not going to read it for you either. But um, notice this. Verse 14 begins with, These are the heads of their father's houses. And then the, the section concludes with um, the end of verse 25. These are the heads of the father's houses. This genealogy is beautifully bracketed by this repetition of phrase. Why is it there? And, and even more curiously, you notice uh, chapter 6 and verse 12, Moses, Moses says, uh, how's Pharaoh going to listen to me? I'm of uncircumcised lips. And then that's repeated in verse 30. On the day that he went to speak, and Moses says, I'm a man of uncircumcision. It's like there's a pickup again of the narrative, moving and advancing forward again. I just, that's the kind of thing that, that gets me going when I see those things in the text. I just had to share it. I want you to see that there is a beauty to the text, to, to this Word of God. It's put together purposefully and beautifully and artistically. Well, here we'll call this the family heads. We've been using body language uh, through this, and we'll call these, this section the, the family heads. And we wonder why. Why is this put here? Well, first one, it tells us, it tells us who Moses and Aaron are. We finally now are introduced to their mom and dad. Uh, and, and we learn they are actually descendant from Levi, which will become the, the priestly tribe. The, this leadership, this work among God's people is not simply administrative, it is priestly. And it's a reminder to us 
And the day will come when, it, when the anointed one of God, the Messiah, the, the Christ will come and he fulfills the office of prophet, priest, and king. And this is one aspect of it. It also reminds us that God is preserving a people. Genealogies are here to show us the line and heritage of, of this people that God is preserving. And here it's the Hebrews. Now, it's not that the Hebrews are all extra super special from any other people group, but God has a plan to bring a specific person into the world, a Messiah, a Christ, an anointed one, into the world through the line which Adam and Eve were promised. The, you will have a seed. Now, the serpent will strike his heel, but that seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Slay the dragon. And then you'll be ushered back into the garden of God. And that's the hope. And this line is carried through. But the enemy always seeks to destroy the line through which the promised anointed one is to come. Whether it's two brothers fighting in the field, Cain kills Abel. Abel who was of the line. Or it's here uh, someone, a pharaoh, trying to eradicate an entire people group. Or when Jesus himself is born and Herod has the baby boys two years and under slain in order to get rid of his competition. But God preserves a people. And we no longer, we're no longer overly concerned with an ethnic kind of preservation. God will handle that and take care of that in his time. What's important as we read this Old Testament narrative is that God has a plan to save the nations. And I'll get ahead of myself at this point because in Isaiah 19, God promises that he would save Egypt. Okay, we can, we can read how nasty and bad Pharaoh must have been. And our hearts can get hard in how we think about Pharaoh. And God is going to deal and judge with that nation at this time, but there is a day coming when he has promised that Egypt will be God's people. They'll come. And the nations are to come to the one true living God. Well, here now is the last one, uh, the last character. We'll call him the strong hand. Chapter 6 and verse 1, uh, all the way through verse 8, God's in control. And his hand is a strong hand. He says, by the mighty hand, I will, I will judge Pharaoh. I will deal with Pharaoh. I will bring Israel out. There's a past, a present, and a future when we consider God's workings. 
in verses 2 to 4 of chapter 6, God appeared to the forefathers. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I am the I am. Verse 3, he goes on. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. This would be El Shaddai. But my, by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I established my covenant with them and gave them the land of Canaan as their land. I heard the groaning of my people. God has appeared to the forefathers. He revealed himself as El Shaddai, a God who provides, a God who is enough. He's sufficient. He's revealed himself now to Moses and to this people as Yahweh. This is his personal name, the I Am, Yahweh, the eternally self-existent one, is best that we can summarize the name of God. But the future is where we want to perhaps look. I know the font's a little small, but I want you to see the structure here again. In Verses 2 to 8, the Lord, again, brackets, encapsulates, sandwiches this truth, his promise. I am the Lord, he begins. And he rounds it all out. I am the Lord. What has he done? I appeared to Abraham and I established my covenant. I've heard the groaning of my people. And I've remembered my covenant. God made a promise to his people. And he will keep his promise. He reminds us, I am the Lord. And then seven actions of God. Seven I wills in the passage. I will bring you out from under the burdens. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land that I've promised. And I will give it to you for a possession. When we do the work of the Lord, when we live the life that the Lord desires us to live, and we meet with discouragement and even reversals, what do we do? Remember what God said He would do. Remember the promises of God. Dwell in this, His living and active Word, and let it saturate your being, permeate your spirit. All these things, liberation and redemption, adoption, a possession, and even, even retribution upon the enemies of God's people are all wrapped up, summed up in this, I am the Lord. Now, we understand as we would go forward in redemptive history that, that Jesus is that promised seed. Jesus is that Messiah. He is that Christ. Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal God taking on flesh and becoming a man to dwell among us, to take on our burdens 
and to pay the penalty for burdens and sin. For the wages of sin is death. And God Himself did that. He promised He would. He did. And He's promised He's coming again to form an entirely new creation where righteousness dwells. When we meet despair, discouragement, reversal, remember the work of God completed in the eternal Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul the Apostle puts it this way, all the promises of God find their yes in Him, in Jesus. Moses and Aaron, we find uh, at, the, at the end of chapter 7 and verse 7, are 80, Moses is 80 years old and Aaron is 83. Again, in love and great honor and respect, as we gaze upon our church family, there's a number that are in this category. 80, 90. God's not done with you. Has a purpose for you. Well, we may not be quite as vigorous as Moses, but God has a plan and a purpose, and He will keep and fulfill His promises for you. Don't give up. Don't give up the fight of faith. Don't give up serving the Lord. God is patiently revealing Himself to these men, Moses and Aaron, to this people, the Hebrews, to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. And God's longing is for the nations to come and worship Him. Jesus is better than Pharaoh. Jesus is harsh. I'm sorry. Heresy. Where were the elders? (laughs) Pharaoh is harsh. Jesus is the gentle king. Coming Palm Sunday, riding on a donkey. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Find rest for your souls. Come to Jesus. He is your true master your true creator, a benevolent ruler. A smoldering wick he will not quench. A bruised reed he will not break. So, Father, thank you for this uh, picture of redemption, this reminder of your promises to preserve a people, And to work out a plan not only to save one kind of people group, but the nations of the world. For we look around the globe and we see great oppression in many different kinds of governments and different kinds of peoples. We need Jesus. The change needs to come from the inside out to make us a new creation internally and then live out the righteousness 
of that new creation. Awaiting the coming of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. As we endure hardship, may we not lose hope, but reflect upon your truth and promise, knowing that it is only by your Spirit that we are enabled to do so. It's in Jesus' name we come. Amen.